Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. In addition, I've been writing in a blog for about two years now, and you can take a look at that stuff as well. And that can be found at cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. My podcast can be found on all the major third-party directories, Google, Stitcher, Apple, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. So you can find me there as well. All right. In this episode, we're going to do a wrap-up of the Austin oral argument and talk about what the likely options are for the U.S. Supreme Court, how it might rule, and then what the likely consequences of any of these various scenarios may be on the back side. And I want to start, before I get into the actual options that the court has, given how the issues were framed in the briefing and then at oral argument, I want to talk about a couple of threshold matters that I think are important to frame my discussion. And the first is really the typical disclaimer that you need to offer when you're talking about how a court might rule in a given case. And that's particularly true with the United States Supreme Court because they only take a handful of cases. And the United States Supreme Court has its own reasons for taking a case. And you never really know what the true reasons are. But you know that four justices have decided, at least four, have decided that the case is worthy of review. And in that episode that I did just after the oral argument, I engaged in some wild speculation about how the justices might be aligned and what the thinking may be and why they took the case and how they're likely to rule. But with the Supreme Court, you always have to be prepared for the unexpected. And pundits are routinely proven wrong when they try to guess what the Supreme Court is going to do. And that could be the case with my analysis as well. So we'll just see. But I'm going to talk about the basic options that I think the court has and what the likely response would be to each of those options. And then the second threshold issue I want to discuss a little bit is the fact that in the athletes' rights movement and with the uh, initial phases of the athletes' rights movement in which athletes were filing lawsuits against the NCAA and the Power Five claiming that the amateurism-based compensation limits were in violation of antitrust laws. You had a sense in the athletes' rights community and in the media and in academic circles and among all the interests that were really paying attention to big-time college sports, 
that the NCAA's decades-long firewall against any erosion of their basic business model and the amateurism-based compensation limits that define it were under a meaningful, legitimate attack, and that these cases were going to fundamentally change the relationship between the athletes who provided the value in the product and the institutional interests that were benefiting from that labor. And when you go back and you look at the California trilogy of cases, starting in 2006 with White, then O'Bannon, and then Austin, and then some of these state laws that were being passed to facilitate name, image, and likeness compensation for athletes, you really start to see that there's this cycle, this pattern, where each of those challenges were viewed on the front end as potentially transformative. Like when White was filed in 2006, And that case, remember, challenged the NCAA's scholarship limit that was set below the full cost of attendance. So the plaintiffs in white, and it was a class action suit, the plaintiffs in white were saying that the cap violated antitrust laws and they were seeking a cap that would be raised to include the full value of attending colleges. And they wanted what are now known as full cost of attendance scholarships. And when that lawsuit was filed, It was hailed within athletes' rights circles and among some in the media as this case that was going to finally bring the NCAA to its knees and to its senses on an issue that many viewed as indefensible. The fact that the NCAA would set a compensation limit below the full cost of attending college and that that limit wasn't set for any other student attending college because the full cost of attendance scholarship is calculated by federal guidelines. And without regard to your status as a student, whether you were a student athlete or whether you were just a quote-unquote regular student. So there was a real sense that this was an unjust uh, limitation on athletes' abilities to participate as college students on equal terms with any other student. And it's important to remember that in that lawsuit, the NCAA took the position that this nominal increase to the full cost of attendance scholarship which varied from institution to institution, but averaged out to about two to $3,000 a year, would be devastating to the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism. And they viewed that modest increase in the value of an athletic scholarship as outright pay-for-play that would ruin college sports forever. And then, after less than two years of litigation, and remember, these antitrust suits can go on for years. O'Bannon really stretched almost a decade from the time it was filed until the time that the attorney's fees issues were resolved in late 2018. But this was a pretty short litigation period, only two years. And then the case settled. And the terms of the settlement left the athletes with very little. The athletes' attorneys made off pretty well, but the actual settlement itself was a pittance. It was $10 million to be spread across an entire class of thousands of athletes who had been denied the full cost of attendance scholarships. And the athletes' attorneys walked away with over $8 million. A lot of people on the backside of white then were saying, what happened here? This this was going to be the case. And it ended with a whimper and a very nice payment to the athletes' attorneys, but very little for the athletes themselves. And then in O'Bannon, you had this same fanfare when the lawsuit was filed, and it made a big splash because the participants had some notoriety and everybody 
remembered in 2009 who Ed O'Bannon was and Oscar Robertson and Bill Russell joined the suit and the college sports commentariat and legal experts were back on the train of this is going to be the case. This is it. This is going to be the dagger in the heart of the NCAA's amateurism model. And then the case proceeds through six years of substantive litigation through the Ninth Circuit. And on the backside of O'Bannon, not only is there only a modest remedy, they got the full cost of attendance scholarships that they didn't get in White. And remember, because White was settled, it had no precedential value. It didn't impose any external regulatory requirement on the NCAA. They just paid and moved along with the same scholarship limit. So Judge Wilkin and O'Bannon gave as nil compensation, the full cost of attendance scholarship for the athletes, and then these very modest $5,000 a year trust funds that were also denominated as nil compensation. And then the Ninth Circuit took the trust funds away and the athletes were left with the full cost of attendance scholarship that the NCAA and Power Five claimed they were going to offer anyway. So in terms of the actual tangible remedy for the athletes, it was very modest, and I'm not suggesting in any way that the full cost of attendance scholarship isn't meaningful. It is, particularly to those athletes who come from challenging financial circumstances. But in the broad scheme of the amateurism model and compared to the amount of money that's coming into the system, billions and billions and billions of dollars from these athletes, this full cost of attendance scholarship to the institutional interest, to the NCAA, to the Power Five, to all their satellite corporate interests was really not even petty cash. It was pocket change. And it didn't really advance the interests of athletes that much. And importantly, because of the way that the Ninth Circuit framed the analysis and brought amateurism back on the remedies phase to impose essentially a form of antitrust immunity for the NCAA as it related to any payments that were not related to education, you can make the argument that the athletes wound up in a worse position because of O'Bannon. And I talked about that when I was talking about the Austin oral argument and the absence of discussion about this O'Bannon Ninth Circuit decision and how that was just folded into the Austin rationale and the Austin injunction. And you really, with Austin in that framework, unless the Supreme Court does something out of the ordinary and throws us a curveball. It looks like they just accepted that as part of the Austin framing of the case, but it reincorporates this limited antitrust immunity for benefits that are not tethered to education. So it eliminates the very possibility of an open and free market for the value of the athlete's services. So then we come into Austin, and I've talked a lot about this, and Austin moves along with this O'Bannon limitation in place. But when Austin was filed, you had the same cheer leading for the theory of the case, which was to completely dismantle and take down amateurism. And you had the same people in the sports commentariat and in academia and in circles that paying attention to athletes, right? Saying, all right, now we're really not fooling around. We're going right for the jugular. And we've got Jeffrey Kessler, this famous sports law attorney who's going to take on the NCAA. And you had this cycle repeat itself. And now, on the backside of that, we have, as I'm going to discuss in a minute, a set of options that does very little to promote athletes' rights or to leave them in a position as a practical matter that's better off than before the lawsuit was filed. And then, beginning in 2019, with the 
formulation and passage of, of California's Fair Pay to Play Act, which directly conflicted with NCAA compensation limits as it related to name, image, and likeness, you had a similar group of cheerleaders saying, wait now, all right, well, the courts may not have done it, and maybe we're not getting what we wanted out of these antitrust suits, but now the states are stepping in, and boy, are they going to stick it to the NCAA. And when you go back and look at the California law, which is held up as by the NCAA as the gold standard of threats to the NCAA business model, you see that there's built-in deference to the NCAA, both in the substantive provisions of the law and its effective date. So in the actual law itself, the athletes in the state of California are not going to be permitted to compete against existing contracts that schools have with sports and apparel companies. And that's a substantial limitation that really defers to the NCAA and Power Five interests. In addition, the California law as structured would not permit universities to make direct payments to athletes. So you have these two really big NCAA-friendly features built in to the California law, and that is the greatest threat to the NCAA. And then a few other states have passed some laws that have largely been deferential to the NCAA's interests and the concerns raised by this working group that was formed in May of 2019 to beat back the state legislative effort. But perhaps the best evidence of deference to NCAA interests was in the bill's original formulation of its effective date. And the very first section of this law states, it is the intent of the legislature to monitor the National Collegiate Athletic Association work group created in May 2019 to examine issues relating to the use of a student's name, image, and likeness and revisit this issue to implement significant findings and recommendations of the NCAA Working Group in furtherance of the statutory changes proposed by this act. And that is why, in my view, the law, the California law, wasn't going to go into effect until 2023. Now, I think they've pulled that deadline back a little bit, so it's going to go into effect earlier. But the initial purpose of the legislation, as expressed in that very clear threshold statement of what this law was intended to do, is that they really were trying to push the NCAA towards some reasonable position on name, image, and likeness. And guess what? That hasn't happened. And while the California legislature was sitting on the sidelines waiting for the NCAA to do the right thing, the NCAA was using its working group and creating the secretive presidential subcommittee on legislative action to ram through a bill in the Senate that would have made the California law completely null and void. Because what they were asking for, what the NCAA was asking for in Congress in this stealth campaign was a federal preemption provision that would have nullified any and all state laws that conflict in any way with any NCAA amateurism-based compensation limit related to name, image, and likeness or otherwise. So while the California legislature was trying to work in good faith with the NCAA, the NCAA gave them the double barrel flip off and they went full court press in the United States Senate and they came very close to getting what they wanted. 
And as I'm going to explain in a few minutes here, they're not finished in the Congress. They may not be, depending on what happens in this Austin decision that will be forthcoming in a month or so. So the point of looking at all of those allegedly milestone events in the evolution of athletes' rights is to say that the deference to the NCAA, whether it is through invisible values-based principles, through decades of NCAA propagandizing its amateurism-based compensation business model, or through explicit deference to the NCAA, as is evidenced in the California law and this initial statement of purpose that really defers to the NCAA. Those are really powerful dynamics that I think have limited the progress of the athletes' rights movement. And I point these out because there is this sense in the Austin case, when you read articles that were published right after the oral argument and you drink in what the visceral reaction was to the oral argument, most of these commentators, most of these articles really come away with the same impression that I had at a surface level, and that is, wait a minute, these justices were pretty hostile to the amateurism-based compensation limits. But when you look at the history of these fits and starts and these bold proclamations and all of these milestone events going back to 2006, you see that that was false hope. And so really, by pointing this out, this is the reality check, because if the pattern holds true, in Austin, it's unlikely that the Supreme Court is going to issue a ruling that really alters in any meaningful way the existing status quo in the relationship between the athletes and the NCAA and the Power Five. And you're going to see just another event come and go that had great promise on the front end and resulted in virtually nothing of practical benefit for the athletes. And using the analogy of a foot race, if this were a mile-long race and you're running it on, on a track and you have four laps, the NCAA starts at the beginning of lap four and the athletes start at the beginning of lap one. In every discussion about any potential change to the fundamental relationship between the laborers who provide the value in the product, the overwhelming majority of whom are African-American, and the affluent institutional interests who benefit from that labor, the overwhelming majority of whom are white. So nothing's changed. And I don't think anything is going to change. And that's not to be pessimistic. It's not to throw a wet blanket on what, what we thought we heard <laughs> at the oral argument that led me and others to some optimism. I'm just saying we have to put on our reality glasses when we look at the likely outcome in the Austin case. So now I want to turn to what I see as the Supreme Court's options in this case, as framed by the parties. And I see four. The first is a grant of absolute antitrust immunity to the NCAA. That's what the NCAA is seeking. And that would occur either through the Justice Breyer view that these non-economic values-based justifications for the amateurism-based limits really place the NCAA and Power Five outside of the reach of antitrust laws, or through this disingenuous Genuous, in my judgment, dishonest framing of antitrust immunity by the NCAA is nothing more than a quote unquote deferential abbreviated review or a quote unquote quick look 
where all the court needs to do is look at the NCAA's characterization of the anti-competitive practice at issue and if it is an eligibility rule that relates in any way to amateurism, whether it's an amateurism-based compensation limit or something else, then the NCAA wins as a matter of law and the case is just dismissed. It's in any subsequent antitrust suit, the NCAA just puts the Supreme Court's Austin decision on the bench and says, okay, we're done. And it's dismissed, gavel, bang, next case. So you have that option. The second option, and I've talked a lot about this, is that the Supreme Court simply affirms the decision of the Ninth Circuit in Austin which would preserve the status quo in the Ninth Circuit and this limited antitrust immunity that's brought into the Austin decision by incorporation, by incorporating in this O'Bannon II framework. So that option may be appealing. I guess I'll talk about the individual options in more detail as I go along. I'm just going to go ahead and list what they are. So we've got absolute immunity. We have a mere affirmance of the Ninth Circuit opinion. Then we have some possibility that they could find some issue that they want the Ninth Circuit to take another look at, and it could be sent back to the Ninth Circuit. One of those issues that came up in that regard is this notion of the cross-market analysis. And Justice Barrett asked asked Solicitor General Prelogger about that. And that really came from Mylon Smith's concurring opinion in Austin in the Ninth Circuit, where he criticized O'Bannon and then Austin on the grounds that they were actually not being true to the way that the market was defined. And in all these antitrust analyses, if antitrust law applies, before you get to these tests that you apply, you have to define the market. And in both O'Bannon and Austin, by consent of the parties, the market was defined essentially as the market for the value of the athlete's services and labor, the athletic talent and labor of the athletes. And just to give you a sense of what that actually is, I'm going to read from the O'Bannon trial court's decision where it defined the market and it was agreed to by the parties essentially in Austin. Judge Wilkins says, The evidence presented at trial, including testimony from both experts and lay witnesses, establishes that football and Division I men's basketball schools compete to recruit the best high school football and basketball players. Specifically, these schools compete to sell unique bundles of goods and services to elite football and basketball recruits. The bundles include scholarships to cover the cost of tuition, fees, room, board, books, certain school supplies tutoring, and academic support services. They also include access to high-quality coaching, medical treatment, state-of-the-art athletics facilities, and opportunities to compete at the highest level of college sports, often in front of large crowds and television audiences. In exchange for these unique bundles of goods and services, football and basketball recruits must provide their schools with their athletic services and acquiescence in the use of their names, images, and likenesses for commercial and promotional purposes. So that is the fundamental market. And what Judge Smith was saying and what Judge Barrett was asking about at oral argument in Austin is this 
cross-market conflation of the interests that are within that defined market and interests that are outside of it. So what Judge Smith was saying is, wait a minute, you're putting all this weight on the interests of consumers and consumer preference and consumer demand and consumer behavior, but those are external to the actual market that we've defined. And taking the interests of consumers and comparing them to the interests of the athletes within the defined market has the effect potentially of elevating the interests of consumers with the restrictions that limit the athletes in the defined market. And you can't cross-pollinate like that. And I think that's my understanding, at least, of what the cross-market issue is. And that didn't really get a lot of attention. Judge Smith raised it at oral argument in Austin on March 9th of 2020. And then he focused on that in his concurring opinion. But that issue wasn't really addressed by the parties in their briefing in the Supreme Court. And Justice Barrett was the only justice who addressed it. And when she asked General Prelogger whether that was something that we needed to be concerned about, Prelogger said, well, yeah, it's it could be out there and it's a complicated analysis and it requires a lot of thorough consideration, but the issue really wasn't presented, so we'll have to leave that for another day. But if Judge Smith is correct, the if you eliminate the consumer preference issue, you just view that as completely outside of the interests of the participants in the market as it's defined, that could be consequential and much more pro-athlete. So it's possible, it's possible the Supreme Court could say, wait a minute, this is a big thing here and we're sending it back for consideration. I think that's unlikely, but the option is out there. And then there is this fourth option, and that is that the justices, that five justices just say, look, we're just bringing the hammer down on the NCAA, and we are calling their BS on amateurism as a pro-competitive defense. Because remember, as the justices point out, pointed out, or at least Alito, Kagan, and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, they said, look, you're coming into this court and you're saying this is the rare case where this illegitimate compensation limit that you place on athletes is anti-competitive, but then you turn around and say that that is your justification for your business model, and then you offer it as a pro-competitive justification in the rule of reason analysis. And that's just ridiculous on its face, and we're just going to end the charade right here, right now, and we're going to leave the relationship of the revenue-producing athletes to the institutional stakeholders to the free market and treat these athletes as any other American would be treated. So I, I want to talk about those four options generally and then a little, in a little more detail about three of them, the immunity issue, the affirmance of the Ninth Circuit, and then this free market option. But when you look at those four options, what you see is that the NCAA either comes out essentially as a winner under those scenarios or has an opportunity to get another bite at the apple to preserve the amateurism-based compensation limits in another forum. So let's first start with the immunity issue. And I just want to say that despite all of this language that came from primarily Alito and Kagan and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh that seemed so hostile to the basic amateurism-based business model, none of them and no other justice categorically said to the NCAA and the Power Five, there is no way you're getting antitrust immunity. It's just not happening. 
And I think given some of the comments that those justices made, it wouldn't have been an inappropriate thing for them to just say that based on what they're seeing right now, there simply isn't going to be any antitrust immunity and we're not going to give you special treatment. And we don't see this as the rare case. Justice Kavanaugh came closest to that. But none of them outright ruled out that possibility as categorically unfair or outside the scope of the options that they had. So that's it. Again, that's a reality check. And if they wanted to disguise the immunity issue, then they will just play along with the NCAA's fantasy that couching this as an abbreviated deferential review or merely a quick look that gives some presumption in favor of NCAA amateurism rules isn't really outright antitrust immunity. It's just the ordinary application of the rule of reason, and we're just giving the NCAA this little bump up because of amateurism. They could do that. And if they did that, That would be, in my judgment, one of the most consequential decisions in the history of college sports. And and I don't want to be sitting in divisive rhetoric, but honestly, if that's what the Supreme Court does, that is the college sports equivalent of the Dred Scott decision. And whether you view it in the context of the racial composition of the business model or simply in the context of the rights of this particular group of laborers, what the United States Supreme Court would be doing by granting antitrust immunity explicitly or implicitly is saying to these athletes, you are not Americans on the same terms as other Americans. You are in a special category that doesn't deserve the protections of the United States Constitution, of the founding principles of this country, and of the antitrust laws which are designed to prevent the very practices the NCAA is engaging in. And that's the only values-based conclusion, I think, that you can draw if you look at how the NCAA's compensation limits actually fit into existing antitrust law. And that is a possibility. That could happen here. The other thing about that option, if the Supreme Court were to grant explicit or implicit antitrust immunity, I don't think that's an issue that Congress could come back in and fix if it were disposed to do that. I think if the U.S. Supreme Court simply carves out this exception under antitrust laws, the Congress can't come in and say, well, the Supreme Court was wrong. And we have some legitimate basis for taking action that's inconsistent with the Supreme Court decision. So I think that would be really a permanent nail in the coffin of the athletes' rights movement. So now let's turn to the other option, and that is simply affirming the ruling of the Ninth Circuit in Austin. And that's there seems to be momentum for that outcome. And in this episode, I'm not going to get into guessing what the justices are going to do. I have some thoughts, but I think that may be too speculative. But I'm looking at this second option about just affirming the lower court. And that's what everybody seems to be asking for on the athlete side, not just the United States who's arguing for the athlete's position and the athlete's attorneys who are arguing for that position, but all of the friend of the court briefs in support of the athletes land in the same place. And that is that the NCAA compensation limit should be subject to the full rule of reason antitrust analysis 
and that the result, the bottom line result in this case, is to affirm the decision of the Ninth Circuit. And that would certainly seem like a safe place for a majority of the court to land, given the limitations of the options that they have been presented. And I'm not going to go back into all the arguments I've already made in prior episodes about how poorly framed those issues were in my judgment compared to the purpose of the original lawsuit, which was to be a complete takedown of amateurism. The result under that scenario is just adopting this dysfunctional model, this O'Bannon-based model, and saying, okay, well, technically, yeah, the compensation limits are subject to the full rule of reason analysis, but it ignores the fact that under O'Bannon 2, there can't be an analysis that leads to anything more than these very limited education-related benefits and takes completely off the table any compensation to athletes, direct compensation to athletes for the value of their labor and the value of their services. So again, I think that's a form of antitrust immunity. What's interesting there, and this would all depend, of course, on how the court couches its decision and how it looks at the two options. I think it's going to have, whichever way it goes, it's going to have to address how it reaches its choice between antitrust immunity and merely affirming the Ninth Circuit. And if they reject antitrust immunity, which I think they will, I hope they will explicitly, I think they're going to probably say, wait a minute, the basis for this immunity has nothing to do with the rule of reason analysis. It is this notion that Kessler identified, that Prelogger identified and argued very effectively was the NCAA pulling amateurism completely outside of the rule of reason analysis and using it as a freestanding value that essentially takes the NCAA completely outside of an antitrust analysis. And if that is the basis for their rejection of immunity, and then they merely affirm the decision of the Ninth Circuit in Austin without addressing how the O'Bannon 2 framework requires the limitations of the Austin injunction, then they really have sort of skipped over this really important component of a mere affirmance of the Ninth Circuit, and that is that the Ninth Circuit in O'Bannon used amateurism on the back end as a freestanding normative principle completely outside of the rule of reason analysis, and it had no relevance because as, as General Prelogger made very clear and very effectively, the only relevance that amateurism has in the antitrust analysis is as a pro-competitive justification. And if it's used for any other purpose, it's being used as a freestanding principle that has absolutely nothing to do with antitrust law. That's exactly what the Ninth Circuit did in O'Bannon too. So if the U.S. Supreme Court says, We are rejecting the use of amateurism as a freestanding, independent value that has nothing to do with antitrust law. And then they adopt a decision, they adopt a ruling of the Ninth Circuit, which uses that very same impermissible use of amateurism. They would be conferring upon the NCAA the very amateurism-based antitrust immunity that they just rejected in saying that they are, they are not going to grant explicit antitrust immunity. And I just don't know how you would reconcile those two outcomes, those two, the, the analysis between the absolute antitrust immunity and then the backdoor limited antitrust immunity that would come through O'Bannon if the court simply affirmed the decision of the Ninth Circuit in Austin. And again, it all depends on how they word it, but I think that's it's a big deal. 
So under those two options, the NCAA wins no matter what. And I've said all along that the NCAA could not care less about the actual Austin injunction order. It's it's very limited. It has very little uh, bite. And I don't think the Power Five conferences are going to use it to engage in an education-related arms race. I just don't see that happening. Under the affirmance option, the NCAA basically gets a very nice status quo in the Ninth Circuit locked in. And I mentioned this in the prior episode, but at the oral argument in the Ninth Circuit in Austin, the NCAA was arguing O'Bannon all the way, and not just with respect to its initial threshold preclusion arguments that O'Bannon has already been decided, and that decision really determined all the issues that were raised in Austin. They were using O'Bannon, the O'Bannon framework and the O'Bannon reasoning as a shield for any liability for the full value of the athlete services. So O'Bannon ultimately now, and with the benefit of hindsight, is a really good case for the NCAA. And it looks like a win to me for the NCAA. And the NCAA has been arguing in Austin as if it is a win for them. So I don't think they're afraid of a mere affirmance. Except, of course, for the nickel and dime continuous litigation issue that is a legitimate concern. But again, that scenario plays out in a context where the NCAA has limited antitrust immunity from any liability for an open and free market for the value of the athlete services. And then the only other real threat to the NCAA under that scenario, if the Supreme Court just affirms the Ninth Circuit's injunction in Austin, is that some other circuit is going to take up the issue and treat it differently than the Ninth Circuit. And then the question is going to be, how is that going to play out differently? I think that a Supreme Court ruling affirming the injunction in Austin gives a lot of momentum to the same outcome in any other circuit, and that is an outcome with this education versus non-education related benefits, which is a tempting distinction to draw given the NCAA's propagandized view of what its institutional interests are all about. Then the athletes really haven't gained anything, and then you have this firewall that could be built circuit by circuit against the most just outcome, and that is to let these athletes be treated under American law, the same as any other Americans would be treated. And then this kind of far-fetched, I think, possibility that the Supreme Court could just completely take down amateurism and say, look, there's no justification for this in any other setting outside of college sports. This would be a per se violation of antitrust laws. And your justification is nonsensical because you're saying that the very limits that constitute the anti-competitive behavior for the anti-competitive compensation limits. So if that happened, that would look great on paper and it would generate enormous buzz. But, but, and this is a really important but, that decision could be overturned by Congress because Congress would have the authority under that option to come in and grant the NCAA an antitrust exemption that would permit the amateurism-based compensation limits. There was talk about that after Board of Regents with respect to the television football market and giving the NCAA an antitrust exemption that would allow them to get their football empire back. There was some discussion about that after this law case on the restricted earnings coaches' salaries in men's basketball that after the Tenth Circuit said, no, those are 
basically a per se violation of antitrust laws, the NCAA could have gone to Congress and asked for an antitrust exemption. So if the U.S. Supreme Court were to go that route, they would not foreclose the NCAA getting the same relief in another forum. And I want to talk about that just a little bit because I have been basically making the suggestion that after the January 5th special elections in which the Senate flipped from Republican to Democrat, that the congressional option was a dead letter. And I did not mean to make that suggestion. I At one point, I think I mentioned that there were some other issues in play there that may make the congressional option still a viable one for the NCAA. But there's no question that the strategy of the NCAA and Power Five changed literally overnight, and they ceased their voluntary rulemaking on name, image, and likeness, and then they completely pulled out of the Congress, and they're just sitting back waiting to see what happens in Austin, and that's going to inform the next step. So I think we need to look at that a little bit and talk about what those next steps might be, because under all of the possible outcomes here, there is no outcome that leaves the NCAA and Power Five in a worse position than they are now, or without an option to get everything that they want from Congress. So there's no knockout punch here for the NCAA. There is a knockout punch for the athletes, and that would be the grant of immunity, either uh, explicitly or implicitly. And so this really brings us to a point in the discussion where we're looking at what the NCAA Power 5 next steps are. And before I get to that, it's so important to remember the context in which this Austin case arises, how it has fit into the NCAA's broader strategy in the perfect storm to achieve absolute control of the iron throne of college sports regulation, because this antitrust immunity issue is simply one component of three basic components of the NCAA Power 5 power grab. And going back to the work of the working group and the way that the NCAA has handled the antitrust litigation going back to 2006, and then looking at how that all came together in their offensive game. They'd been in defense for a while. They went into offense in May of 2019 with the formation of the working group and then this stealth effort in the Senate to get these three crucial components of their overall strategy to acquire the Iron Throne of sports regulation. Number one was the antitrust immunity. And as I've discussed before, they were getting two bites at the apple because they were pursuing that in Congress and in Austin, although they were lying about what they were doing in Austin. They're continuing to do it. And then the second component, and this may be really the most important one right now, and that is the federal preemption of any state law, any state regulation, any state interference the NCAA's ability to impose without consequence its amateurism-based compensation limits on revenue-producing athletes. And then you had this third provision, which nobody's talking about right now, and who knows where that really sits in Congress. And that is an edict from Congress that revenue-producing athletes cannot be deemed employees of their universities, which serves two purposes. One, to prevent direct payments from universities to athletes. And two, to make it almost impossible for athletes to organize a union under which they could try to get 
collective bargaining rights with the university. So in looking at those three components, right now we're just focusing on the antitrust component in this Austin case. But depending on what the Supreme Court does, the NCAA and Power Five are going to have to look at how they're going to get all three of those because they view all three of those as essential to preserving their business model and their revenue streams. And that's what this is all about. One of the things that has gotten very little discussion in this overall debate about athletes' rights is that on the preemption issue, the complete elimination of state legislatures as external regulators of college sports, the NCAA has two options as well. A lot of people assume that because they pulled back in Congress that they basically lost their advantage to get this really important protection and immunity from Congress. They can get the same thing by filing a federal lawsuit against any state who has passed a name, image, and likeness law. And as any of those laws go into effect, the case would be ripe to challenge those laws under the dormant Commerce Clause. And it's something that the NCAA has been very coy about talking about. And you have to remember that back when this working group was put together, one of the initial threats that the NCAA had made, and Mark Emmert made these some comments early on to the effect that they viewed those state laws as unconstitutional because they created an impermissible burden on interstate commerce. And the rationale for that lawsuit would be that a, an organization like the NCAA that operates at the national level can't do its job if it has to comply with 50 different state standards and that each of those different standards imposes a different burden on the NCAA that uh, interferes with its ability to regulate commerce across 50 states. And there's a case out of the Ninth Circuit from the 1990s called Miller v. NCAA, where the Ninth Circuit held, and this was another Tarkanian-related case, Tarkanian really <laughs> resulted in some some really bad case law for the athletes. But in that Miller case, the court, the Ninth Circuit struck down a Nevada state law that required the NCAA to offer due process protections that went beyond what the NCAA was already providing. And that was came after this Tarkanian litigation. But long story short, the NCAA was saying, wait, we can't do our job as a national regulatory authority and comply with regulations in 50 states that are inconsistent with the way we want to regulate. And so they were using a uniformity theory. And the Commerce Clause analysis accommodates a uniformity basis for claiming that external inconsistent regulations constitute an impermissible burden on interstate commerce. And what's important about that legal theory and that Miller case is that the NCAA could, through suing the state of Florida, for example, and I think that's the way this was going to go because the Florida law goes into effect, I think, July 1st, and Florida is very NCAA friendly, and it's my belief, and I'm going to talk about this in a separate episode, that there's some cooperation going on there between the NCAA and Florida and they don't want to sue the state of California because California is hostile to the NCAA's interests. And if they lost, they would appeal it up to the Supreme Court. In Florida, the case may not go beyond the district court level because if I'm right in my cooperation theory, neither party is going to appeal a ruling that 
strikes down the Florida law on interstate commerce grounds. So you have this option where the NCAA could get the exact same result, achieve the same goal of eliminating state legislatures from the regulatory field as they would have gotten in Congress through preemption. So those two theories are very close doctrinally, and they both have constitutional underpinnings. The Commerce Clause is an enumerated power under the Constitution, and the preemption power from Article 6 is is a power that derives from the Supremacy Clause. So you have a constitutional underpinning for those two options. And I, I don't know how, whether or how that would land in the Supreme Court. And there are a lot of unknowns there, and that's a big analysis, and I really haven't fleshed that out yet. But from a strategy standpoint, if you're operating the NCAA Power 5 chessboard, the NCAA's got some pretty good options here. And I also want to note that while Mark Emmert made those threats of suing the state of California back in 2019, in March of 2020, during the oral argument in Austin. Judge Smith asked Seth Waxman some questions about the potential impact of California's fair pay-to-play law on the Austin suit. In response to that, Waxman said, well, we think those law that law is unconstitutional. And Judge Smith says, why is that? And Waxman articulates the Dormant Commerce Clause theory, cites the Ninth Circuit Miller case, and says that the NCAA is still of the belief and prepared to pursue a Dormant Commerce Clause clause case against the state of California. Of course, in the meantime, Florida's jumping in to create a pretty easy, friendly pathway that would get them the relief they want under a dormant commerce clause theory. But that theory is alive and well, and the NCAA clearly has that on the table in its chess game. So that decision, of course, is going to be informed by how the Supreme Court rules. But if there is any sense that the Supreme Court is friendly to the NCAA's immunity arguments or their conceptualization of amateurism, then I think that the NCAA has a dormant commerce clause lawsuit ready to go. It's in the hopper. And don't be surprised to see it filed just before July 1st. And of course, if they feel like that is not the best option, they can still go back to Congress. And one of the things that, that I, as I mentioned earlier, that I really haven't talked about much is that even though the Republicans don't have this slam dunk, ram a bill through option because they don't have the NCAA-friendly Republican majority anymore, there's still some question marks out there in, in terms of whether they can get enough votes, at least on the preemption issue in Congress. And one of the things that I I haven't really gotten to yet, because I haven't talked in detail about these hearings that have been conducted in the Senate since February of 2020, is the really important Power Five factor. And remember, no bill was brought to a vote in the Senate. So we we really don't know how a particular committee would actually vote and what the vote breakdown would look like. But when you look at sort of the partisan division that developed in the Senate and really dug in, and you look at the people on the athlete side and then the people who were on the NCAA side, I think you're looking at two completely different set of interests. And I just want to go back to the August of 2020, and that is after the July hearings in the Judiciary Committee where Lindsey Graham asked Cory Booker and Blumenthal to 
put something together on athletes' rights. And so there was this group of senators back then that formed the corpus of the athletes' rights movement in the Senate. And I just want to just go through this list real quick because there's some important limitations in this group. So you had Chris Murphy, who is a Democrat from Connecticut. You had Dick Blumenthal, Democrat, Connecticut. Cory Booker, Democrat, New Jersey. Bernie Sanders, independent, but Democrat, Vermont. Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat, New York. Ron Wyden, Democrat, Oregon. Maisie uh, Hirono, Democrat, Hawaii. Brian Schultz, Democrat, Hawaii. And Chris Van Hollen, Democrat of Maryland. There are only three senators who have legitimate Power Five schools there. And the, the most important one is California and Kamala Harris. And who knows where she is on this? I mean, she's, she may have bigger fish to fry. But when you look at the primary movers and shakers there, Murphy and Blumenthal and Booker, you're looking at interests that really aren't going to be that controversial. If those guys go out on a pro-athlete crusade, there's not going to be a lot of pushback because between uh, those three senators and uh, those two states, only Rutgers in New Jersey is a Power 5 school, and it's it's probably the least powerful of the Power 5 schools, quite frankly, and the one that probably least belongs with the Power 5. So you're not going to have a lot of pushback at the grassroots level. And because of the vast coverage of the Power 5 across most of the states in this country and the number of senators that are within those uh, Power 5 states— Regardless of their party, you're looking at a, a really huge voting block that if they follow grassroots interests, remember, these people are politicians, regardless of their party, regardless of any other ways that they have voted in the past. This is a unique beast. And what you've got are the interests that tie directly into the political infrastructure, the football interests, the football fan base, the influence it has at the state level in every branch and in every nook and cranny of the climate and culture of the state. Those are brought into the thinking of the senators who represent those states. And if you don't think that that doesn't impact the way that they're going to view this issue, I, th I think you're living in a fantasy world. It's going to affect it. And the NCAA, in its congressional campaign before it pulled out after the January elections, it was very focused on getting a critical mass of moderate Democrats from power five states to make it appear as if there is bipartisan port for this bill that was going to basically eliminate the athletes' rights movement in one fell swoop. And I think that it's a misconception that that dynamic has been overtaken by the change in control of the Senate from Republican to Democrat. I think if the NCAA gets a result in Austin that leads them to think that they have to go back to Congress rather than going to uh, sue Florida before July 1st, I think they have a shot, particularly on this preemption issue. The preemption issue, I think, was really the thing they were worried most about, these state laws, because they've already gotten Pretty good favorable treatment in federal antitrust cases, as this Austin case illustrates. But these state laws are the real threat here. And preemption has been central to the NCAA's campaign all along. And it's very appealing because they're selling it as national uniformity. The same thing they would sue on under the Dormant Commerce Clause was the philosophical justification for preemption of those state laws. And that is that the NCAA needs uniformity and consensus, and we don't want a hodgepodge of rules and all the loaded language that they used to beat into the senators that uniformity was a good thing, which means preemption is a good thing. 
And I think that there's a possibility that even if the NCAA has to go back to Congress and they limit their congressional campaign to that single issue, which had bipartisan support in my judgment after looking at all these hearings, and I have watched them several times, I've read the transcripts, I've teased out the exchanges that I think are important, and I really believe that there are more than 51 senators who would support a preemption-only bill that resolved this uniformity issue that the NCAA is screaming about. And if that comes along with some language from in the Supreme Court opinion in Austin that suggests that there should be some deference to the NCAA or make some offhand statement about uniformity, and who knows what they're going to say. But there could be some momentum in Congress that the NCAA could exploit. So I'm not ruling that out, but the long and short of this in summarizing all of the Austin-related issues is that the NCAA is in a win-win position on the two basic options that I think are the most likely in the U.S. Supreme Court. And if they don't get what they want, even if they were to get a body blow with a decision that just dismantles the amateurism as a justification for the business model, they can always go back to Congress to focus on preemption and argue that an antitrust immunity is absolutely essential. And now Congress is the only body that can provide it. So we'll see how it all plays out. But as I see the ultimate options that will come out of Austin, I just don't see an option that just takes the NCAA down. And most of the scenarios involve really dealing another blow to the athletes' rights movement. And hate to say that, and I, I know everybody's all fired up about the possibility that the Supreme Court is going to do something that meaningfully changes the business model, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. So that will lead us then, of course, into a discussion of what exactly these other options the NCAA and Power Five might have will play out. And to analyze the Commerce Clause option in Florida, that's a big analysis and That'll probably take a couple of episodes. And then looking at the congressional option requires us really to go back on track with the perfect storm timeline that I originally started with. And then I diverted off as this Austin case was uh, moving into the Supreme Court to really focus on that. But to understand exactly what the, the lay of the land is on the congressional side, we really have to go back to May of 2019. So not quite sure what the next episodes are going to deal with with. I talked about maybe some myth busting, but structurally, maybe this is a good time to talk about options that the NCAA and Power Five will have, regardless of what the Supreme Court does in Austin. So thank you so much for joining. I love having you along for the ride, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.